we are all connected all our voices matter and it will take all of our pooled talents and strengths to create a healthier planet our mother our one and only home. i aspire to change the world too because of the hope she gave me the earth is beautiful she devoted her life together to together we can together we will what is your greatest reason for hope i'm jane goodall and this is the hopecast Hello on Airfest. This is Dr. Jane Goodall beaming in from my home in the UK. It's lovely to meet you all. In 2020, I started a podcast of my own, the Jane Goodall Hopecast, where I talk to incredible people about what gives them hope. I never thought I'd be a podcast host, but here I am. Today I'm so excited to speak with someone who shares my appreciation for and love of plants as well as the rest of the natural world. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Dr. Kimmerer, an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, is a SUNY distinguished teaching professor of environmental biology and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. The center's mission is to create programs which draw on indigenous and other scientific knowledge for our shared goals of an interconnected world where people, animals and the environment can live in harmony. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller Braiding Sweetgrass: Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge and the Teachings of Plants. I'm so looking forward to our discussion about indigenous wisdom. the incredible nature of plants and to affirming our integral relationship to the earth today for a better tomorrow i hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with robin wall kimmerer robin it's really exciting to me that you have agreed to be our guest on this episode of the hopecast i think the first thing i'd like to ask you is I remember really really well and I don't know how many years ago it was but when we first met and it was a, a big occasion there were a lot of people there can you remind me of that occasion Jane I remember it so well as well we met on the shores of historic Onondaga Lake in in Syracuse New York at the heart of Haudenosaunee territory here in upstate New York it was in order to talk together about how indigenous ways of knowing could be medicine for this lake which is both a sacred lake and the most polluted lake in North America you're so well known for your books especially braided sweetgrass how did it all start for you You know, my journey as a botanist and a plant ecologist and I guess a student of plants, Jane, began for me as a kid. I wonder if this is true for you too. People will say, "Well, how did you get this interest?" And I think I was practically born a botanist, you know, looking at plants and being fascinated by them, you know, as well as birds and salamanders and everyone else out there was the gift of growing up outdoors. You know, isn't it fascinating? Because people always say to me, "What triggered your love with animals?" And I always say to them, "I was born with it. Maybe something happened when I was in my mother's womb, 
And that was the same through my childhood, all these things I did with animals. She was always supportive. And, you know, that's that's such an important role for a mother, don't you think? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, you know, I had pressed plants under my bed, on my desk, you know, and like your mom, you know, instead of saying, oh, get that mess out of here, it was, oh, let's look at these together. She gave me my first uh, wildflower book and sat with me to, to try to show me how to learn their names. So, yeah, we don't do this alone, right? No, we don't walk life's path alone. That's such an important part of the journey, isn't it? The people that you meet along the way that you gather in. So you did botany at school? Not until I went to university. And I studied botany and plant ecology then, which was a rather different way of thinking about plants than my familial experience with them you know it was it was my introduction to the western scientific worldview having grown up on the land and with the background of my Potawatomi heritage how I thought about plants and encountering the scientific worldview was jarring for me but at the same time it it opened you know so much to understand their inner workings and so forth that I hadn't had access to before. It was a bit of a struggle between those two ways of knowing. Did you have any sort of arguments about the way you thought versus the way Western science thinks? I did, and and much of it was because I was the only Native student in the whole university. There was no one there to say, yes, that is the way that we think about plants. So I became very quiet because I thought my ways of thinking weren't welcome there. And um, it took me quite a long time to find my way back to my, to my own voice. What's fascinating me now about what we're talking about, you know, the traditional knowledge versus Western science, is how the people studying trees are now completely moving into trees, communicate, trees uh, nurture their young ones, and all this new information. I, I imagine you're totally fascinated by it. Oh, Jane, I am, and it's and there's a a wonderful redemptive quality, you know. When I hear your story about having to sort of struggle to have people accept your holistic view of chimpanzees, for example, that revolution is happening in the plant world. Some of the the things about how plants communicate with one another, how they support each other, how they live as a we not just as an I. There are some times that I smile to myself and say, well, Western science is catching up to indigenous knowledge. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it, it's, I was absolutely fascinated by one thing when I first began to understand about the Japanese studies of, of Japanese monkeys. And they had very much not a Western science way of thinking. It was much more like the indigenous people. And then I went to Cambridge and I learned how to write as a scientist, just as you have. And I enjoyed it. I mean, I love thinking things through logically and letting my intuition dictate a question and then saying, okay, now I'll put on my scientific hat and test to see if it's real. I loved that. But what I found with the original Japanese writing 
about the Japanese monkeys. It was just as I was writing and thinking about the chimpanzees, but then gradually it began to change, and I put on this scientific hat, but I never lost the underlying empathy. Being able to speak and write scientifically in just the way that you're talking about, I, I love that kind of, of investigation, but it's only part of the puzzle, right? It's only part of the tool set. And I think where we go wrong in is when, when we're taught that it's everything, that that's the only way to see the world. It's an amazing way to see the world, so powerful, but it's not the only way. And when we bring them both together, as you have done, the world changes. In Africa, with the chimpanzees, we have a whole wing now studying their use of plants in medicine, curing themselves. And it turns out that the the local people, they use the same plant very often for exactly the same medicinal use. (laughs) Don't you think that's fascinating? I do. I do. And I'm so intrigued to hear that that's true there. For us in Anishinaabe ways, we say that it was the bear who um, taught us those things because they're omnivorous, their physiology is very like our own. And that's how we learned a lot of medicines is by watching how the bears took care of themselves and to not count out the plants themselves as teachers. What role might they have played in somehow communicating to us their gifts? I wonder. And we're still finding out new things about plants. The role each little plant has in an ecosystem in combination with the animals in the ecosystem and how that makes up this whole beautiful tapestry of life. How connected we all are. Biophysically, ecologically, genetically. And now, you know, we're seeing this amazing work on on plant cognition by, um, you know, Monica Galliano and her colleagues um, that are, you know, starting to demonstrate plant memory and learning and, and behavior, behavior which is so slow and in a different mode. But just because they don't behave like animals doesn't mean they're not behaving, right? Um, it's just a revolution in progress. It is. But is this going to lead us into big um, ethical problems. I mean, right now, there's this big, big movement towards a plant-based diet because of overconsumption of meat is destroying the environment and wasting water, producing all this methane. So people now, you know, move towards a plant-based diet. In Potawatomi ways, we, we talk about this very thing, Jane, about what we call the honorable harvest which doesn't say don't consume because we as heterotrophic animals, we have to consume, but it says to consume with honor, consume in a way that does honor to the beings whose lives you're taking and does honor to yourself as well. There's, there's a whole protocol for how we treat the living world as, as relative. You know, when we met 
at Onondaga Lake, that day opened, as does any gathering in Haudenosaunee territory, with what they call the words that come before all else, which are exactly what you're saying. It is an inventory of thanks to the waters and the fish and the trees and the birds and the plants. And it's a protocol that just brings people together in gratitude for exactly the beings whose lives are helping us. And in it, we say uh, thank you to the corn, beans, and squash. It's such a wonderful example of regenerative agriculture, right? That you grow the corn, the beans, and the squash together in one mound. But then that corn, if the crows don't take it, um, uh, stands up so straight, and then the bean has something to climb on. And the bean positions its leaves between the corn leaves, so they're not competing. They're just collaborating. And of course, the bean with nitrogen fixation is feeding the corn. So the bean is helping the corn, and the corn is helping the bean. And then at their feet are the squashes with, you know, those big leaves that they have that are slightly prickly, so they deter herbivores. They keep the soil moist. So it's a system that needs no irrigation. It needs no fertilization. It is the three of them together that creates that mutualism. It's brilliant. And you get more food when you plant them in polyculture. And it's better for the soil. And it's, of course, nutritionally complete diet. I actually like to use it as a metaphor for for knowledge as well, is to think about the corn as indigenous knowledge, complete with its values. And then the bean is like the curious science that's powered by that nitrogen. But when the bean is guided by these values of respect, reciprocity, gratitude, I think we do better science when we have those those two ways of inquiry and knowing together. I'm very excited, and I'm sure you are, to see how regenerative agriculture and permaculture and are taking hold. It's just magic. I mean, to see a whole ecosystem beginning to regenerate and to bring back the insects and the birds and the flowers. And if you give nature time and space what nature will do to bring back what we took away. Yes. And Jane, that work, especially the work in agroforestry, you know, just brings to mind, as you say, if we get out of the way and let nature do the healing work, it's really powerful that we have to and can have a hand in that. You know, for too long, I think we've bought this notion that humans and nature are in opposition to one another, that they're a bad mix. The best thing we can do is hands off. When access to nature feels to me like a human right, how can we fall in love with the world if the world is all concrete? You know, people say I'm a scientist. Well, I did get my PhD, but I think of myself as a naturalist rather than a scientist. And then people say, well, what's the difference? I say, well, a scientist goes out and wants to know and asks questions and tries to get the answer, makes theories and tries to prove or disprove them. A naturalist goes out open to the wonder, letting nature fill you. Yes. 
it's so much more whole, isn't it? It's mind, body, emotion, spirit, and imagination. And our scientific training can marginalize all those other beautiful human ways of being. We get more data, we get good p-values, but I don't think it necessarily serves human values. You know, I'm sure you've seen my octopus teacher, haven't you? Yes, yes. I mean, isn't that lovely? Oh, my God. And to me, that epit- I mention it a lot because it epitomizes a totally different kind of intellect. I mean, you imagine having a brain in all your arms and legs and fingers so that they could all work independently. It's impossible to imagine, I think. And yet, octopus can come up and do the same kind of solution to a problem that we do with our one brain here. <laughs> I I just love thinking about these things, you know. You know, in that film, I was thinking, of course, in that very section you're referencing about that that's how plant intelligence is. It's a distributed intelligence of, of meristems and buds and root tips all gathering and processing information. And we were blind to it because it's not how we think we concluded that they must not be thinking at all, as opposed to opening our imagination to what creative problem solver you would be with distributed intelligence, octopus or or pine tree. (laughs) Yes, right. Imagination. You kept referring to imagination. When I was growing up, I was always telling stories and my mother wrote them down. I had some lovely stories when I was five. And telling stories, I mean, that is something so important. And in some cases, the only way of sharing knowledge is to tell stories. And, you know, I've found that when I'm giving a lecture, I shy away from statistics because although at the time they make sense, you don't remember them. Whereas a story, you may not remember exactly the details, but you get the whole emotional feeling of a story and you can repeat it. And I've actually noticed with Native American storytellers, some of them, the stories they tell, they're not always the same. It's the same story, but it has different twists in it. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the notion that stories are alive themselves and change and and grow. And I agree, Jane, you know, the way in which you have become a storyteller, you know. I think that in my own evolution, I have gone from scientist to storyteller because it feels like that's what we need right now. We need we need stories that invite people into relationship with the living world, um, not inform them about it. Um, you know, the way science teaches about nature um, or we learn about nature. I want to learn from nature. And that's what stories invite us to do, I think. It's, they don't tell us, they invite us into relationship. Yeah. When I was 10 years old, I was telling everybody, I want to grow up, I want to go to Africa, I want to live with wild animals and write books about them. But when I got offered the opportunity of going to study the chimps, I said, I'm going to live with and learn from That's what I said from the beginning. Not learn about, but learn from. There's a big difference, isn't there? Oh, my goodness, yes. And it calls to mind the so often overlooked virtue of humility, 
that is so lacking, I think, oftentimes in our human-centric culture of the humility to say, I'm going to learn from intelligences other than my own. For me, Jane, it is a great comfort to know that there are intelligences other than our own. You know, if I thought that that we as a species had to figure everything out, oh, <laughs> we can't, we can't. But to know that we could rely on solutions from our relatives by learning from the living world, I think that's the path forward. And if we can cultivate that humility, we will all be better for it, rather than the arrogance of our time that we hold up. So I've asked you hundreds of questions. Do you have any for me? I think that one of the questions that's very much on my mind that I would like to hear how you navigate is that like many folks, I think, who love the world, we're pulled in so many directions of what do we think are the most important things we can do from the individual actions to the systemic change. In Braiding Sweetgrass, I, I argue with myself about this. I'm caring for my little pond. Meanwhile, there's a great polluted lake a few miles away. Where should my efforts be placed? And it's something that I continue to struggle with. And I'd love to hear how you've done this because it feels to me like you've been doing it both the small local things and the global things. I'd, I'd just love to hear about your thinking about how do you find where to invest your energy? I invest my energy in things that I am passionate about. The trouble is I'm passionate about so much, but I think if people tackle what they're passionate about, okay, I want to do something, what can I do? I really care about these littered beaches, all right? Get out there, roll up your sleeves, try and get a little group of people, and pick up the litter. And the great thing is that once you see that you're making a difference, it makes you feel good. And when you feel good, you want to do more so you feel better. And as you feel better doing your one thing, you take others with you, they become more inspired and it kind of spirals out. And then you find that in your community, some people care about litter, other people care about rewilding, other people care about protecting an endangered species. Some people want to stop the building of yet another shopping mall. And there's enough of us to tackle the different things locally. And then when you realize that all around the world, there are people tackling local things, that collectively is making a huge difference. And then you dare to think globally. And, you know, the answer is you can't do it all. And so I always tell the young people, do what you really are passionate about. And, you know, maybe later on you'll enlarge your passion. Maybe you'll stick to it and build it up. It doesn't really matter as long as you do something. Well, Robin, I really want to thank you for being such a terrific guest and giving us so much wisdom. Thank you very, very much for joining this HopeCast. Jane, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a privilege to speak with you. And thank you for all that you do. And thank you for all that you do too.
thank you everyone who's tuned in today to On Air Fest, and special thanks to our Hopecast guest today, Robin Wall Kimmerer, and our production partner, Frequency Media. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Galkusha and Alana Hellens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman. And Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. <laughs>